Miss Mackintosh, my darling. Chapter 34.2. Last part of this chapter. Cousin Hannah had been so piercing, witty, incisive, quick to express herself. My mother, in spite of her inclinations, and though she had taken enough drugs to put an entire army to sleep, could not help being greatly fascinated by this remarkable visitor, so different from the others who came and went and left their calling cards, for they were the dead. But my mother's mind had necessarily wandered, then as now, when she thought of this old cousin, who now perhaps was wandering among the shades, yet my mother's attentions had been riveted by this unusual force, as if this one caller should prey upon the mind when all others were forgotten. Cousin Hannah had tried to infuriate her, to cause an outbreak, to cause a breach in my mother's fragile defenses, perhaps an eternal breach, a wound which would not heal. She had had no respect for the tranquil mind, the mournful heart, the dream of death. She had never attempted to master her riotous feelings, to subdue her unruly spirit, to curb or restrain wild forces of her desire, running away with a bit between, her te between their teeth. She had never submitted to another's will. She would have died rather than have done so. No one believed that she had ever slept. She had always been, as my mother lovingly remembered her, trying to reconstruct a faded personality, a great wit flashing back, making merry with a macabre retort, an apt paradox, a parable in unknown tongues, which had left my mother nearly stunned as if by another spurious deception, and she had scintillated, emitting sparks like the undying dream. She had seemed to wear great silver scales. She had seemed to shine in her own light. She had been quick to move. She had not been heavy-footed, slow to move, calculating every movement in advance of her making, living through the future as if it were already the uncertain past. Nor was she elephantine like Mr. Spitzer, the elephant with the angelic wings of a failing memory. She had dazzled. There had been no lack of presence of mind, of acute perception, diamond sharp as to each fleeting moment, each phantasmagoric event which did not transpire in reality. Her denial of the dream was not her ignorance of the dream, for had she not overheard the whispers of sleepers' intensity shifting with the wind? There had been no lack of audacious elegance, for she had not been graceless, and she had not seemed out of all proportion, voluminous enough to contain two people, herself and another, a secret man, even should he be only a puppet, a mere pygmy upon a boundless horizon, or a butterfly sailing at midnight, a blind moth sailing down the light. Nothing had agitated her so much as the sound of a cock crowing. At the sound of a cock crowing, she had strutted, dancing a weird dance, giving off showers of metallic sparks, stretching her long neck as her cheeks twitched, doubtless because in certain Moroccan courtyards, which she had visited, she had seen that the cock is, is great golden sultan, lord of the morning, lord of all he surveys, that even the hens wear black veils, like the secret woman in Perdo, including those great beauties who never will be seen by their lords and masters. So as had been her message before, she had wished to take off these veils. God pity the lip-reader in all those countries where Cousin Hannah had said the women wear veils, and God pity the deaf and the mute in all those countries where the human face is not seen. She had always worn around her belt numerous iron keys which had jangled, giving off dissonant music, but her splendid elan vital, forever spending itself, yet never spent, continually renewing, for should she not quicken the earth by her death, and should not the clouds give up their rain when she was dead? By her amazing eclat and thunderous career, by her explosive notoriety, which had always raised a hue and cry, and brought her before the public gaze, she had shaken many people loose from their moorings, and she had struck fear into the hearts not only of many courageous men, perhaps also the hearts of many timid women, few being, it would seem, capable of rivalry with such a venturesome chasseur, mountain climber, and chamois hunting, leaping from peak to peak, chamois hunting, 
chamois hunter leaping from peak to peak. As to her own career, it was said that she was jealous of Mount Blanc. She was jealous of the slumbering Jungfrau, no top peaks and clouds, jealous of the Igar, the Monched, the Matterhorn, Monte Rosa, waiting for great snows to melt, hissing like foam, waiting for snow-peaked mountains to reach sea level. Nothing so adamantine as the Alp of Wedlock, however, and nothing so undissolving as those great peaks of snow and stone, the great thunderheads forever in the clouds, which were storm centers attracting lightning flashes and thunderbolts. Should mountains crumble at a breath, great avalanches fall upon the mountain climber and his alpine dog? Should snowflakes fall upon the face of the dead mountain climber like a veil or a shroud? My mother, having no object for her love, had viewed her as the object of her lost romance, wondering why no man had been this woman, why no woman had been this man. Why poor old cousin Hannah, an unmarried spinster, her energies as yet unspent, was always like a traveler between two worlds. Why she would seem as strange, even while she lived, as Mr. Chandelier or a seven-branched crystal candelabra, glittering in a far heaven, moving from star to star, which lighted in, the, lighted in the reflection of that passing flame. As strange as the golden cock crowing in the twilight of my mother's opium dreams, that cock which, its feathers ruffling in the ebbing light, an Irish housemaid swore had also awakened her, and she had thought it was morning, and she had polished a mirror all night long, and she had never been convinced that the night was not the day, and finally she had gone stark rave, staring mad. For my mother's dreams had become confused with this real apparition, and so my mother had often felt, when Cousin Hannah was still alive, that she should apologize to her profusely for the continuous mistake which she had made, confusing her with another, one she might never be. Cousin Hannah, though she had not taken drugs, though she had walked from room to room, had seemed just like someone who might have succumbed to this habit in order to exaggerate self-confidence, or to compensate for early death or early sorrow. Yet there had been no death, my mother had believed, and there had been no sorrow. She believed that they were not the same. Death negated sorrow. Perhaps by the same token, sorrow negated death. Cousin Hannah had exceeded these human dimensions by many dazzling cubits, just as if her head had reached above the stars, man seeming a dwarf by comparison with her. For what was man, a mere apparition in this empty house? Who knew? What was man, this poor amalgam crumbling at a touch? He seemed inanimate, inanimate and suddenly he moved, just as if a dead hand should suddenly move. What was man, this constant obliteration, this which was always in the process of ceasing to exist, of becoming no more, perishing, passing away like the wreath of the wandering foam, like the song of the dead bird? What was he but, at most, a nine-days wonder, short-lived and ephemeral and deciduous, a creature of changeableness, a creature of transience, a falling star, a meteor gone before we knew that it had passed? He was the broken seashell. He was the dead cocoon. Who had organized this illusion? Who had placed order upon this old chaos, which, as it seemed to decrease, was forever increasing, just like one of my mother's opium dreams? My mother could see the mirrors dancing, flying toward the ceiling, and that was why she had always yearned for clarification. A teacher of arithmetic, <clears throat> who would teach her to add, subtract, multiply, divide, <clears throat> find an integer, and then when she knew arithmetic, she would learn plain and solid geometry, my mother said, for if she knew geometry, she would know who the geometer was, whether that which began with a rational abstraction should end with an irrational dream. She would know whether she, he was sane or insane, this great illusionist who, with his golden-footed compass moving across the clouded sky, had designed these great concentric circles and eccentric circles and half-moons and elliptical paths, these wandering orbs and diamond horseshoes, these relations and properties and measurements, and enlargements, doublings, mirror images, figures in space, 
The spider's web singing like the candle flames. Nothing lived except through imagination, and nothing died except through imagination. My mother yearned that there should be one real person in the world. But Cousin Hannah, unlike these hallucinations, had been no mere speck, dot, or moat evolving into life, no mere fragment or scintilla or powder or dust, no one toward whom one might remain indifferent, as if she were only a button or a feather, an old song, a dead hand, an immaterial being of the air. A mere nothing, a piece of trash, an imperceptible gleaming of an eye in the darkness, perhaps my mother's eye which stared at my mother all night long. Cousin Hannah had surely been vivacious, even in the dimmest moments, a threat to weakness. My mother never would have believed it possible, even though centuries should pass, that Cousin Hannah's strength would fail, that she would give way, fall to pieces, crumble into dust, become an invalid in a darkened room. Her fate should have had a better fate in store for her. Perhaps she seemed to have passed beyond these considerations, to have circumvented them even during her life. Perhaps, of course, wishing to, wishing to differentiate herself Wishing to differentiate between herself and the fortunate many, my mother had attributed to her a quality of endurance which she, a horizontal invalid, did not possess, nothing enduring. She had wished to envy this perpendicular woman, proud and free, seeming to dilate the heavens by her grandeur. My mother could hear the stars rustling, falling like the autumn leaves, die-cold winds blowing through empty corridors and lanes. There was always the slamming of a door, though whether someone was coming or going or coming she could not say. There were scurrying footsteps, perhaps, of little mice in the wainscoting. My mother had felt both very flirtatious and very guilty, trying to resist this man who was no man, for this man was surely not Cousin Hannah, and it was my mother's mind which wandered, just as when she talked now for hours to the white cranes crying in the sawtooth cloud. For her imagination, as she knew only too well, had always played upon her such terrible tricks, those which should have driven another lady to distraction surrounding her with as many imaginary lovers as if, though she was isolated, she was a center of attraction, the magnetic force. Was she not the magician, and should she fool herself by these evident deceptions, like a Houdini fooled by his own tricks? Nothing, of course, had enraged old cousin Hannah more than such untenable forms of rivalry, and they had caused her titubation, to, 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 to her staggering gait, even when she was quite alive, still able to take care of herself. Nothing had enraged her more than when there were no other rivals, her embittered knowledge of these dream loves, which would have no counterpart in reality, no answer in face. She had continued to try as long as she had lived, and was still able to travel back and forth to overthrow these loves which were no loves, and seemed, therefore, invulnerable, to overthrow these imaginary men, to rout them from the castle as if they were all thieves. She had never ceased to urge my mother to follow in her path, to take flight away from these vain, narcotic dreams immobilizing her. Her contempt for old Joachim had remained necessarily boundless, like her indifference. Through the passing years, she still had not recognized him, or so my mother had certainly believed, though with some bewilderment. She had distrusted all men categorically. All were opposed to her, this marvelous old maid who was prepared for a great conflict. Cousin Hannah's needs had transcended merely mortal needs, my mother believed. This brave warrior had outdistanced ordinary life, but hers was a shining pinnacle upon this horizontal plane. She had cared for no man in this world, for no man in the next, and not even for the idea of a man, it had appeared. Nor had she ever ceased to express her various aversions upon the subject of man, puny man, when in that halcyon time of long ago she had used to come to see my mother for a few fleeting moments which seemed, in inaccurate memory, like a few fleeting years, the extension of a dream. She had stood by an oblong mirror in my mother's bedroom. Perhaps she had placed her faith quite mistakenly, my mother thought, in a woman. For even this faith might seem now to have passed long ago into a realm of doubt. Cousin Hannah, being dead, 
having now no identity, no faith. She might be now a cloud, a bird, a tree in the wind. She had distrusted my mother because my mother was a woman, so very whimsical, quick to change her mind, guided only by her wandering emotions. Losing her way through snow clouds, wandering lost like a snow goose in a snowstorm, leaving no path upon the snow or the clouds, no trail of bridal lace upon the snow, going in all ways but the way which she intended, unable to focus her attention upon one object, unable to differentiate between the subjective and the objective worlds, the inner light and the outer darkness. She had distrusted my mother because my mother, even through her lack of faith, had placed her faith in Mr. Spitzer, at least in the dead, sorrowful half of him, which, like the other side of the moon, was never turned toward this world. Cousin Hannah had never given up, though the years had passed, her belief that Joaquin would cruelly disappoint my mother at the last, crucial moment, abandoning her to the furies and to the gods of revenge, even as Perone had done at the first, when he had apparently committed suicide, taking a coward's way out leaving Joachim to accept that vicarious responsibility which had always been the slow brother's sense of peculiar guilt and of inestimable loss.